This is Love in There, and my name is Johannes Rompan. This is a podcast where I sit down with people and talk about love. In the last episode, you heard me talking with Maria, and and here we go with Maria to meet Chad. Chad Harper. He has this charity called Hip Hop Saves Lives, and. This is again a situation where I feel there's so much to say about the work Chad is doing. Probably one of the main reasons I'm I'm, I'm late with this podcast is because I wanted to make a great intro. But now I came to the conclusion that the most important thing is just to to get the get the talk out. And so yeah, just listen. Just listen to what he has to say. Here's the talk. Could you tell me again about you said you were about the project you were I love I love you project. I love you project. Oh man, it's a really cool story. Um, there is a guy named Johnny Barnes. Yeah. He's the most famous guy in Bermuda, the island of Bermuda. In his mid twenties, every day on his lunch break, he would go to the busiest corner and just stand there and as all the cars go by. He would stand there and wave, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he became really famous. He did it for like 70 years. And I saw this video online a few years ago, maybe like seven, eight years ago about him. Um, so I got this big sign um, that you know made up that said, I love you, about you know uh, three feet tall. And I went on the Brooklyn Bridge for a couple hours telling people I love him. I went to Times Square, <laughs> just holding the sign, telling people I love him, meeting people from all over the world. And because he was the inspiration, um, I flew to Bermuda, went to the corner where he did it every day, and now he was retired, so he, he would do it from six o'clock in the morning to like 10.30 a.m., and everyone driving to work would see him because there's only one route to go to town in Bermuda. So everyone would see him every day. So I went there, met him, and asked if I could stand there one, one morning with him. So I did the whole I love you with him. And then I told him, I'm a, I'm a you know, music producer and songwriter, and I want to do a song to honor you and a music video to honor you. Um, so he allowed me to videotape him doing the I love you thing and me doing it with him. And then I asked him, you know, what type of music does he like? And he was like, man, I really love Hawaiian music. And I was like, okay, I never made a Hawaiian type of beat, but I can uh, see what I can come up with. So I went, you know, back to this Airbnb where I was staying and went through my beats and I had this one beat that I was like, ah. I had had made it already. That kind of had the vibe of like really relaxed Hawaiian music. So I went to meet him the next day, and I said, "What do you think of this beat?" And he was like, "Yeah, I like that. <laughs> let's let's use that." And I was like, "Okay, cool." Went back uh, to the Airbnb and found a local hip hop artist. I was just walking the streets, asking people, "Do you know anybody who who, who does hip hop here?" Yeah, yeah. So I, I found this one food truck, and this guy said, "My brother's hip hop artist." Gave me his number, called his brother. His brother came to the Airbnb, we sat there, we wrote our lyrics, wrote the chorus, re- recorded the whole song in like an hour. Next day, went to meet Johnny Barnes again, played him the song. He was just like amazed. And I was like, we're going to shoot a video. So we shot the video with uh, the local hip hop artist, got back to the States, edited the video, sent the video to Bermuda Tourism Department, and they posted it on their Facebook page and website to honor Johnny Barnes. And then just this year he passed. Yeah, so it was really amazing to uh, to meet him 
and so this this campaign was just about you know going out to the streets, spreading love, had T-shirts made up, and uh, that was just a lot of fun. We did it off and on for a couple of years. You say we or a team of of, of people? I because I work with kids, yeah. uh, so I you know my 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 after school kids, I would drag them out to the streets, yeah. you know, after school, like yo, we're going to Times Square to tell uh, 500 people that we love them. And it was really funny. There was this one guy, an African guy from Ghana. And he worked in Times Square doing some touristic stuff. So we had seen him like two or three times. We were always like, I love you, I love you. Yeah. And then he would be like, you don't love me, stop saying that. So then one day we're walking to Times Square, we're like a block away and I see him. And I was like, yo guys, we're gonna run up on him and like group hug him. <laughs> so we group hugged him and he's like, what are you doing? Get off me. People in my country, we don't touch strangers. And I was like, but we love you, we love you. And he was like, Fine, I love you too. <laughs> he, he walked away, and I was like, "We won, yeah!" So it was just amazing. We we met uh, just all kind of people from all over the world, especially on Brooklyn Bridge and Times Square, were like big tourist spots in New York. Yeah, yeah. You still do that, or you kind of? I haven't done it probably in about a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was been out of the country for for a year. Yeah, yeah. Where have you been? Like, like last year? I actually left. Uh, November 5th, yeah. went to Ethiopia. Um, I wanted to experience like uh, what the uncolonized land of Africa was like and how that differed from other African countries. I had been to West Africa, Li uh, Liberia, and Ghana before. Yeah. So I went to Ethiopia. I was there for six weeks, and I was working with a company called Afri uh, Run Africa, and they trained Ethiopian long-distance runners to compete on international competition level. So I did a short documentary uh, for their company. And then after that, I moved. I was like, Ethiopia is really cool. I mean, the culture is really just totally different, you know? And, uh, but I, I, it's, Ethiopia has like desert weather, at least in, in the capital, where it's like, I mean, for Fahrenheit, it's like 70 degrees during the day, and it can get as cold as like 40, oh, yeah. 38 at night. So the drastic difference was kind of like driving me crazy. I was like, I didn't move to Africa to be cold. <laughs> so I moved to uh, Mombasa, which is the, the coast in Kenya. Yeah. So I was there for like five weeks. Then I went to Tanzania for four weeks. But in that five weeks I was there, um, as I was walking from this hostel that I was staying at to the, to the mall every day, because the mall had AC, and it was like 95 degrees every day. So I'd walk to the mall every day. I would see these kids begging for food on the side of the road. And they had these little side of the road restaurants with like a tent, some chairs, and just women cooking different local dishes on the side of the road. Yeah. So I would always see the kids, and I would tell them, you know, is, is it just you or the other kids down the road? Go get all of them and come and let's sit down and eat. Because they would beg outside the mall, people would come out with cookies or an orange or give them some change. But I wanted them to have more of a human experience of like, let's go to these little restaurants, let's sit down, I'll eat with you, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm your friend, you know? So they got to know me, and it was so cheap, I mean, each kid could eat for like 50 cents, <laughs> you know, so, uh, I mean, the most I would spend in a day, sometimes I would see them two or three times and spend, you know, 10, 12 bucks in a day, uh, feeding them all, but uh, I, I became friends with them, and this was over Christmas and New Year, And then I realized uh, after New Year, half of them would not be there during the day, only after school, but some were there during the day 
and I realized who went to school and who didn't. Yeah. Uh, so I started to talk to them and I said, well, if you want to go to school, you can take me to meet your parents. We can find a school in your community and I can do some fundraising and get you guys in school. So that's what I did and we got like six, seven, maybe eight kids in school. So just I, I wanted to level the playing field between their friends because <clears throat> in countries like that, you know, or any country really, I mean, it, not having education, having education, you know, eventually there, there's a huge barrier between the kids you grew up with. So I, I really initially was just like, I want all the kids to have the same education and be able to grow and develop together. So that was my first project in, in Kenya, and it kept me going back to Kenya. So my plan was to travel from Ethiopia all the way down to uh, South Africa. But I, I never left Kenya because of the kids. So I would just take trips every six weeks to, to Tanzania, Zanzibar, this beautiful island, and spend time there, do some traveling in Tanzania, hiking uh, around Kilimanjaro. I didn't go up because I had got malaria, so my body was too weak. Uh, but mo like most of my time was in Kenya with these kids. And uh, I had an apartment and decided to get a house because the kids would show up in my apartment. And a one-bedroom apartment, 10 kids outside of my door are like, Chad, open the door. And I'm just like, what is going on? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We don't have school today. And I'm like, okay. So I was like, so you don't have school? That means you come to my house? Yeah. Where else are we going to go? <laughs> right, of course. I know. So I was like, okay. So I got rid of the apartment. I got a three-bedroom house. So I was like, if they come over and wake me up, I can be like, okay, go in that room, close the door, play. And, uh, I'll, and I'll be up an hour or two. So and then I found this local guy who was... Uh, he was a former street kid. His parents died when he was like eight or nine. Former street kid, but rehabilitated himself through the arts. Really good songwriter, playwright. How old were you? How old was he? He was, I think, 26. Yeah. He became a friend of mine, so I moved him into the house, gave him a bedroom, uh, and had him help mentor the kids. Because I'm like, you're a local. You can communicate better. You understand the cultures better. I can't... I can only give what I know to get. I don't, I'm not from here. So I wanted a local to also be there to help with them. So his name was Alex and he became the manager of the community center, had him really kind of set the rules for the kids. Because me, it's like the kids would come over on Monday and be like, we don't have school today. I'm like, okay, can we, can we spend the night? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, does your mom know you're spending the night? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, wait, but you haven't been home all day. How's your mom know you're spending, you're, you're spending the night? And they were just like, well, it's not like she's going to look for me. And I was like, okay. And I was like, you know, I, mean, I, ha I have met their parents, you know, so I, I knew yes. their parents. And I was like, all right, well, I mean, you do tell your parents where I live. And they're like, yeah, yeah, they know where you live. I'm like, well, I guess they can come by. They're looking for you, which they never did. Sometimes the kid would stay three, four days, you know. Um, so I would consult with Alex, like, you know, you're the local, you have to really make the, the decision on this. So he would say, okay, after three days, you have to go home, check in with your parents, and then, you know, if it's... But you, oh. met, you met with these parents, like, what, what, what was the circumstances and, and, and... Most of them were single moms, uh, living in a room like this big, yeah. you know, with three or four kids, one bed, you know. So, I mean, to come to my house, I mean, obviously, like, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have running water. A lot of the kids would just come by because they'd be like, a shower. Yeah, yeah. Can I take a shower? 
And at first I was like, why are these kids so excited to take a shower? I didn't think like they don't have running water in the house, so it's really cool for them to take a shower, you know? Um, also, they would just play with the light switches. Because <laughs> it was just like, we don't have this at home, you know? And I'd be like, okay, guys, listen, you can't. Be like, at, at nighttime, turn the lights on. Just don't turn them on, just to turn them on, you know? Uh, plus, we had a backyard. Uh, we had a coconut tree in the backyard, so the kids would climb the coconut tree, and I'd be like, I'm not looking. Because literally, I'm talking like, I don't even know how many, 100 feet up, and I'm just like, I can't, I can't deal with it. They're like, Chad, we grew up doing this. And I'm just like, what if you slip? But we don't slip. I'm like, okay, I'm out, I'm out. I'm going inside, I'm going inside. You know? It was just crazy. And uh, so it was just like, you know, their destination. And it, it was really, for me, it was like, as long as, to keep them off, the, to break the culture of begging, you know, for me, I was like, listen, you guys are in school now. You have an education. I'm going to make sure you graduate high school. You, you have a chance at life. Like, begging on the street is not going to manifest to, like, uh, a future, you know? So I was like, the door is always open. So that was amazing. And then we just had, like, a lot of issues with the, the neighbors, you know, complaining uh, uh, about, I mean, let's, you know, 15 kids at a house in a, in a neighborhood is loud. You know, and uh, the first landlord we had was just horrible. It didn't fix anything. The second landlord, the neighbors just complained a lot. And I was really missing home, so I came back to the States. Um, so right now the kids are just, we have the kids in school. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we have the kids in school, uh, but the, with the, we don't have the house right now. So I'm trying to figure out how to do that long term. Um, without me being there and go through the proper channels to like find the right location where it doesn't drive the neighbors crazy because the landlord at the end was like you know kicking us out and, you know this you know so not in my backyard yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah so you were kind of the, the safe adult or you were like yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I mean, I just grew up, you know, with my personal kid issues and kind of felt like um, I wish there was another place, another adult, another community center in the neighborhood, you know, because school, you know, you had your issues. I had my issues at school with kids and then it was just home. You know, there was no really community center in my neighborhood to go to. So for me, I was just like, I'm happy to be their community center. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So we would buy football. They play football in the backyard. We take them to the beach. They play football on the beach. How, how many? How many? You said fifteen kids. Uh, at the most, I think we had maybe nineteen that came at one time. You know, it would vary. Sometimes four kids would come one day. Yeah. And the next kid, eleven. Next day, eleven kids come. Yeah. But the most, I think we had like nineteen at one time. Yeah. Yeah. So we would just do different activities. Um, one day, I took them. 45 minutes out of town to like a really beautiful tourist beach, you know, and it was like they had never been 45 minutes away from their neighborhood before because it's, you know, this is like extreme poverty, you know, so took them out there and took them to a talent show and out to lunch and just to, you know, run on a different beach that, you know, they never seen before, you know, just different activities like that just to show them a different side of life, you know, and then I would take them into the mall 
And here you have these kids who haven't changed clothes in like 10 days, walking into, mall, into the mall, which is only tourists and wealthy Kenyans. And they would look, I mean, like, they, I, I, they would just call me uh, the guy with the kids. Oh, you're the guy with the kids, heard about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, okay, what, what'd you hear? Oh, nothing, just that, you know. You always got 10 kids walking behind you. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm kind of a walking community center because as I walk to the mall, the kids, oh, Chad, and they just jump up and they all sprint towards me, running and see who can be the first to hug me. Um, one, because they know like they're always gonna get a hot meal. We're gonna sit down like normal human beings and have a conversation, have something to eat. And then sometimes I would take them into the mall and treat them to ice cream, um, which they weren't allowed into the mall. You know, because, I mean, as street kids, of course, they've been caught stealing or, or just associated with stealing or, you know. Um, so the security guards really got to know me um, at the mall, would always let them in. Or even if I wasn't there, I would tell them, you know, I'm at the cafe, meet me at the mm -hmm. cafe at 4 o'clock. And yeah, yeah. security would be like, okay, yeah, you, you can go in and, you know, but go straight to the cafe and meet Mr. Chad and, you know. <laughs> So it was, it was a lot of fun. It was really like the highlight of my entire time being away. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking like the first time when you, when you said like, take me to your parents, I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to see that you're going to go to school. <clears throat> what was the parents like? How did they react? What did they say? Like when you, a stranger comes in and said, I'm going to put your kid in school. You know, Kenya has this really uh, dynamic on the coast because it's heavy, heavy tourism. And there's wealthy Kenyans and there's extreme poverty. Yeah. And the Kenyans who live in extreme poverty, they literally, it's part of their culture to try to meet a foreigner because that's the best way that their life can be changed. Because living in, in, in these extreme poverty, the opportunities are just not there. Yeah. You know? So I've had some Kenyans tell me that uh, you know if they if they have a really pretty daughter, their daughter is raised to to marry a Muzungu, which is their word for white person, because there's so much heavy tourism from Europe on the coast of Kenya. So they're raised to like find a white guy, or even their sons are are raised to find a white girlfriend uh, to help get them out of extreme poverty, because there's really no. Like in America, you can, you can work hard, save your money, work two, three jobs. But in extreme poverty, you can't get two or three jobs. You literally, you know, you sell peanuts, bananas, fruit on the side of the road, you sell vegetables. At the end of the day, you make just enough money to feed yourself and your family. So, you know, here you can work 18 hours a day if you want to. But there, if you work 18 hours a day, you might make enough money to feed your family for two days. You know? Yeah. There's no really way of getting out of extreme poverty except meeting a foreigner who's going to help you. So when I met the parents, I mean, most of them didn't speak English anyway. One of the few kids would have to translate. Um, but they were very grateful. Very grateful. Um, but then it also kind of creates a culture where like once you're known to like, okay, this guy is helping, then strangers just stop you on the street and ask you to help their kids yeah, yeah. or help my wife who's sick or, and you just get all these requests every single day and it becomes overwhelming yeah how did you handle that uh, I just had a simple rule of like I I only help kids and I 
The reason I do that is because you you can't trust everyone, yep. you know. Yep. And at least I know that what I'm doing for the kids is 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 honest, you know. They, I mean, I'm not giving the kids money. I'm feeding them. I'm paying for their school. I'm buying toiletries because you know the kids didn't have toothbrush, tooth, toothbrush or toothpaste. Yep. They didn't have soap, you know. They didn't have shoes. Um, some of them didn't have changing clothes, so I would provide all those things, you know. So it was never like, but adults that want help from you, they they want money, you know. And and then even when the kids would they would say, "Can you pay for my kid to go to school?" And I would say, like, you know, these kids I'm helping because I met them, because the universe had them in my path. And there's no way I can pay for every kid to go to school, but. If I see a hungry kid as I walk down the street, I'm going to feed that kid. If I get to know that kid, that kid's not in school, I'm going to put that kid in school. But I just can't say yes to any adult that says, pay for my kids. You know, for me, it's like, I don't know who said it, but there was a quote that said, give everywhere you go. And that's just a quote that I keep in my, in my mental. So if I see somebody that needs, you know, help and I can do it, then I do it. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about like setting limits and, and, and it feels like you had you had it figured out like you have you have like it seems like it wasn't that difficult like um you know I've had my nonprofit for over 10 years now yeah. and I've originally volunteered for other nonprofits and kind of learned from them and uh, I mean to be to be honest this wasn't my first time to, exactly to exactly. Yeah. Uh, an extreme poverty situation yeah you know So I, I was I was able to like okay, have my set rules, and live by those set rules, and and, and be totally. The, the, the issue is I, I see a lot of foreigners come there. They've never seen extreme poverty before, yeah. and they're heartbroken and they want to help everyone. Exactly. And you can't help everyone. Yeah. You know, um, and you just so for me, you know, I, I'd been in that situation. I knew how to handle it. Yeah. Can you take me back to like, what was kind of how did you get into? the whole idea of helping people like I mean I would say it started with my mom she was a school teacher uh, and we lived in the suburbs but very kind of close to the city city limit she worked in the city and during the summer she would kind of bring some of her favorite kids to our house for a week to stay and just be like you know this kid you know during the school year was often hungry come to school without a lunch bag didn't have changing clothes so bring them to the house um, she was also always buying food for people on the street, homeless people yeah. on the street. So I really got that from my mom. And then when I came to New York um, in like 1998, you know, I would see homeless people and, you know, buy them a sandwich or, you know. So one time I was uh, I was bartending at this French lounge in Midtown and uh, this nonprofit came in called Charity Water and they did elaborate cocktail parties to raise money for water wells in Africa and now other parts of the world. Um, so I was immediately moved by their the facts that they were showing. Like, I don't know how many kids die every day from lack of clean water and all these different numbers of, of how uh, clean water affects the world or lack of clean water affects the world. So I immediately asked them, could I volunteer for them? So for like a year and a half, I was at all their exhibits volunteering for them. And because I was a, you know, a hip hop artist and songwriter, I wrote a song Um, and put all of the facts that they educate people at their exhibits into a song. 
and just gave it to him as a gift and said, you know, maybe we can sell the song at the exhibits to help raise money. So we started doing that. They loved the song. And my mom was like, people who donate money to charities don't listen to hip hop. So make sure you print out those lyrics when you sell the song, you give them a copy of the lyrics. And I'm like, okay, mom. Uh, which was a brilliant idea because most people who donate to charities, or at least this charity, weren't your typical hip hop head. You know, so they would read the lyrics and this one lady was reading the lyrics and she started crying. And um, and then, so she bought like a bunch of CDs and she asked me to autograph the CD. I was like, wow, this is cool, I'm famous. And she has to take a picture with me. Um, so the, the, it, this last time I, no, not the last time, but the, the one time that was the biggest experience with them, I was at Sundance Film Festival and they had a whole store as an exhibit and this guy walks in I share my song and I share the lyrics with him and, and everything. And he buys a CD. And then he says, how much is it for a water well? You know, and I said, oh, typical cost is $4,000. He goes, okay, I'll buy one. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a water well right now. And I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, hip hop is saving lives. And uh, that's where the name of my organization came from was just that experience of talking to that one guy and sharing my song lyrics and him reading it. He goes, okay, I'll buy a water well. <laughs> so my organization was birthed Hip Hop Saves Lives. Yeah. Um, and that was 11 years ago. Yeah. How has it been since? Like how, how, how did you start with your own charity? Oh man, I can say that You know, before Hip Hop Saves Lives, I was also making music, producing music, yeah. more popular, you know, culture-focused music. And uh, I really had this perception that New York City was just the city where people come to make money, to make it, and that the average person in the city was selfish, unconcerned about humanity, you know? And then as soon as I started volunteering for this charity, I met all these amazing people right here in New York City. And I was like, wow, there's like, there's like two New York cities. <laughs> there's like the typical, like, I'm here to make money. Yeah. And then there's just, a, there's amazing community of people that are trying to change the world. And uh, that was like the biggest uh, transition coming from starting this charity. Um, and using hip hop, I met all these amazing hip hop artists that wanted to to use their music to, to better humanity, better their community. Um, I met a whole a whole new world, you know, um, in the same city that I was living in, which I never imagined these people were here, you know. So just that experience alone, I mean, drastically changed my life. My circle of friends overnight changed, you know, and I had really close friends that. I didn't even speak to it anymore. And it wasn't because I didn't like them, yeah, no, but we no longer had anything in common. Yeah. Even the music they made was like, I don't listen to that type of music anymore. I don't make that type of music anymore. So, you know, and they kind of, they really had no beef with it. They were just like, Chad's going on a new path and we don't really cross. And they were like, cool, like enjoy your life, you know? Can you speak a little bit to the, like the, essence and spirit of hip-hop um, sure. and its birth and how that weaves in with love and how love weaves into that. Yeah, this is my one of my favorite stories in the world. Uh, maybe because I told it 
5,000 times. Uh, but as a, like for me, hip hop, like I started breakdancing at, at the age of 11. Uh, went from breakdancing to writing rhymes at 14, producing music in my late 20s, shooting and editing videos in my late 30s. Now I'm 46, so, you know, that's over 30 years of hip hop, you know? So it's been like at my heart and soul and really found my, my self-worth through my creativity in hip hop. Um, and as I started my nonprofit, I really wanted to better understand hip hop. And I knew that like Cool Herc, who's called the father of hip hop, you, you know, had, uh, had these rules where he, at his parties, there was, you know, no beef, no fighting. And if you ever started any problems, you got, you know, kicked out of the parties. But I wanted to find out like, what, what was that C? Like, how did it really snowball into this culture of creativity? And through that process, I met a guy named Shane Nicholson from Queens, who was working on a documentary. And the documentary is called Rubble Kings, R-U-B-B-L-E Kings. And the documentary tells the story of the gang peace treaty that birthed hip hop. And I'm like, how does nobody know this? Why is no one ever talking about this? So I would Google it, find articles, and literally, after the civil rights movement ended with Martin Luther King getting killed, Malcolm X getting killed, JFK getting killed, there was like a huge recession in America. Um, the inner city became, you know, not a typical black neighborhood anymore where parents looked after any kid. Um, you know, drugs and crime was infested into the neighborhood. And uh, gangs formed on each corner because back, back then in, in black and brown communities, there was really no police protection. You know, you'd call police and they wouldn't show up because, you know, they were racist and they didn't care. And it was like just the end of the civil rights movement. They were trying to, like, how do we balance out the success of, of the civil rights movement? Um, what year was this? Uh, well, this was 68 yep. to like 71. Um, all these gangs formed, especially in the South Bronx, or just in, in the Bronx in general. Uh, so each gang would form to create a sense of community on the street and not allow outsiders in to rob and steal. There was a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of homelessness. And a lot of these gangs were formed by like street kids mm. whose parents were on drugs or in jail. Um, and, but it just kind of spiraled out of control where like, you know, these, I mean, these, these were teenagers, and you know how teenagers, they, have, they get upset easy, especially in, in these environments. So there was a lot of beef between gangs, and there was, it just spiraled out of control, there was a lot of killings, and there was a guy named Black Benji who was in a gang called the Ghetto Brothers, and the Ghetto Brothers formed to walk the streets and try to make peace between the gangs to stop the killing, saying, listen, like, we're all, we're all black, we're all Latino, we're just killing each other, we're mad at the system, we're not mad at each other. And this is just, you know, too much. So the Ghetto Brothers were really, really loved in the South Bronx. And their reputation spread all over New York. There was chapters opening up in Brooklyn and Queens. And everyone knew the Ghetto Brothers who worked to make peace between gangs. Didn't always work, but sometimes it did, and they got a lot of respect for that. One night, there was a really big gang fight going down between three different gangs. And Black Menji went out to make peace. And he ended up getting killed by accident. And no one knew who really made the mistake of killing Black Benji by accident, but all they knew was like, that was the one guy you didn't want to kill. 
So all the gang, once the word came out that Black Benji had got murdered, all the gangs went to the Ghetto Brothers headquarters and said, listen, we might hate each other, but tonight we unify to revenge Black Benji's death. So 42 gang leaders, who normally would never be seen on the same street, all came to Black Benji's mom's house to tell Black Benji's mom that we are going to revenge your son's death. So Black, uh, the head of the Ghetto Brothers went inside to tell Black Benji's mom, you know, I've got an army outside and we're gonna revenge his death. And his mom says, my son died for peace. If you have any respect for him, you'll stand for peace. So he was like, wow. So he walks back outside. He tells the 42 gang leaders, listen guys, there's no revenge. And at this point, the gang life in New York was so big that there was news, the local news was there waiting to hear what was gonna happen next. And uh, the, head of the, the head of the Ghetto Brothers even says, the news reporters were mad that there was not gonna be revenge. They wanted that story. So we tell the 42 gang leaders, listen, a couple days from now, we're gonna have a meeting at the Boys and Girls Club, and we're gonna figure out how we can honor Black Benji. So a few days later, on December 8th, 1971, 42 gang leaders made a peace treaty. And they said, there was over, over 100 gangs in the Bronx at the time, but they said, there's 42 leaders here. All 42 of us are gonna say, we're, never gonna, we're not gonna fight and kill each other anymore. Between us 42, there's peace, you know? Um, so that was the, so the Ghetto Brothers were also, um, a few of the guys in the, in, the, in, the, in the gang were musicians. And they said, we can't just say that we're not going to fight. We have to make sure that we do it. So every Friday and Saturday night, we're going to meet at the park. And we're going to come out with our drum set and our guitar. And we're going to bring our amps out. And we're going to have a jam session. And we're going to have our own party. And we want all 42 gang leaders to invite all their gang members. So you got hundreds of gang members all partying together every Friday and Saturday night to make sure they honor the peace treaty. And those parties created the culture of hip hop. So you figure they still had the gang jackets on initially, they still had the gang energy, they still had the gang beef. So when, you know, for example, your gang, the best dancer was dancing on the dance floor, you know, I would want the best dancer in my gang to dance on the dance floor. So it became a battle through dancing. And that's how uh, break dancers started the culture of hip hop. They would battle through dance, and then they battled through rhyme. And then, so hip hop was birthed from those parties to maintain the gang history, which is why African Nevada, who defined the culture of hip hop, he said what he experienced at those parties was peace, love, unity, and having fun. So still to this day, that's the official definition of hip hop, peace, love, unity, and having fun. I, that's, that's amazing. I haven't, I haven't heard the story. It's, it's amazing how big hip hop is and that story has never been yeah. told on a global scale. But you should check out the documentary Rumble Kings. It's on Netflix, it's on iTunes. So everywhere I go in the world, I tell people you have to watch this documentary. I even show the trailer to the film, uh, which tells a lot of the story, but not like, you know, in detail. Um, and yeah, I mean, I probably told this <clears throat> and shared that story in 30 countries around the world. And so, what, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You are, of course, telling the story, but why do you think it hasn't been told? Like, why hasn't, you know, who benefits from it not being told? Ah, uh, well, I mean, you know, corporate America makes a lot of money off 
hip hop and materialism. And if hip hop is peace, love, unity, and having fun, then you know how do you sell all these material items that these rappers rap about? I mean, now hip hop is really just you know the songs are like commercials for luxury items. You know, they're rapping about Versace, Mercedes, and Rolexes, and Benzes, and you know, uh, America is a very capitalistic culture. So I feel like if it doesn't fit into that mold of it can help us make billions and billions of dollars, then it's not going to be marketed, you know? Yeah, it's so, it's so harsh, kind of dumb. Yeah. Capitalist reality. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, as, as a hip hop artist who knows the story and loves the story and, yeah. and my, my nonprofit represents that story, it's our job to continue to educate and, ho and hopefully that, you know, it just has a ripple effect and, you know, I mean, I would love to one day help produce the film that really tells the story. The documentary is out, but people don't watch documentaries like they watch films. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could make it into a film with, that's kind of like a Black Panther type of style, you know, that you can reach hundreds of millions of people. But a documentary is not gonna have the same reach, you know? So hopefully one day, I would love to be involved in, in making it into a film. That sounds like you will. I'm planning on it. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, hip hop saves lives. It's, it's 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 is that the framework where we work with the kids? Yes. Yeah. So we started January fifth, two thousand twelve, with our youth program. Um, it was by accident, to be honest. My intention was never to work with kids. Yeah. It was to work with local hip hop artists. Uh, in New York that speak intelligently, inspire, educate through hip hop. And uh, I had this program called The Song A Day where I, a friend of mine had a studio and I rented like four or five hours of studio time a day, messaged every artist in the city that I knew that rapped, sang, did poetry, made beats, uh, played instruments. And I said, here's the address. We're here every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And our goal is to record a song every day. And because the people who started hip hop were everyday heroes, I want to find a different everyday hero and us write a song about that everyday hero. So we had this cool project and literally in two and a half months we recorded like 50 songs, probably 30 different artists came through, collaborated on these songs. And one day I get a message from a friend of mine who's a school teacher and says, my principal, no, he says, I, I have a hip-hop after-school program where I have kids mm. write lyrics, yeah. but we have no recording. Can I bring the, th the three of my best kids to your studio to be, to be part of uh, your song today? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I think the day he came, I had to work, but the studio engineer still let them in, and uh, we had parents come to make sure because I didn't, you know, I didn't, had, had never worked with kids before, so I said, at least one parent has to come. Um, so the kids picked heroes because we got a website that we went to, or actually two different websites where we about everyday heroes. Kids picked heroes, wrote songs. And then I got a message from the principal, his principal saying, that was an awesome experience for our kids. Can you do that as an after-school program? I was like, sure. And he goes, send me, send me your curriculum. And I was like, 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a little busy this week, so I'll send it next week. <laughs> so then I was like, okay, what's the, what's the curriculum? You know? Yeah, yeah. So did some studying, did some research, put this curriculum together, sent it to him. And he goes, you're hired. <laughs> Great. You start next Monday. He's like, awesome. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I called a friend of mine, and I was like, yo, we're about to get paid to teach kids how to do hip-hop. And he goes, shut up. You're lying. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. And we start next week. My friend, his name was Joel Baptiste, and he was a videographer. And at that time, I didn't know how to shoot or edit videos. So I was like, I have to hire, because I put that in the curriculum. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That we... Find the hero, write the song, record the song, shoot, edit the video, and send the video to the uh, the hero as a gift. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I have to find a videographer. This is the only. Luckily, I, I knew one. So I called him, and he was like, "How much does it pay?" And I was like, "Well, the guy's paying me. What was he paying me? A hundred bucks a day? Yeah, hundred bucks a day." I was like, "But I'll split it with you." So we get 50 bucks each. <laughs> he was like, oh my God. And he was like, you know, at the time I was managing a restaurant and he was a bartender. So we both had to be at work at 3.30, but this after school job started at 3.30. So he was like, what are we gonna do? And I was like, this is a dream come true. I'm quitting my job. And he's like, for 50 bucks a day, you're quitting your job? And I'm like, dude, listen, man. They're like, He's like, how are you going to pay rent? I'm like, I don't know. I was like, but I'm not, I'm not turning down this job. He's like, all right, I'm not either. So he quit his job. I quit my job. We're making 50 bucks a day. <laughs> we both got like three months behind on rent, you know. And uh, it was literally the success of the program just snowballed. And within yeah. right when, like, I think he was almost about to get evicted, we got like two other contracts. So, and of course, at that point, we charged more. So we were able to like sustain ourselves. But that principal only hired us for, for four weeks. Yeah. At the end of the four weeks, I remember walking in the classroom, announcing to the kids, guys, this has been great. You know, I love you guys. We've been here 16 days out of the last four weeks. Um, yeah, because it, it was actually Monday through Thursday. Uh, and, but the principal says that, you know, the budget, was just for a month. So unfortunately, today's our last day. But I will never forget this this girl in the back of the classroom. She stands up and she starts like speed walking to the front of the classroom. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, she must really have to use, use, use the bathroom. Let, let me just get out of her way. And as I move, she moves in front of me and walks like face, like almost nose to nose. Tears popping out of her eyes. And she says, you cannot walk in and out of our lives like that. And then she leaves the room. And I was like, did you hear that? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what are we going to do? He's like, I don't know. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, guys, give us five minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll be right back. So we walked to the principal's office. And I'm like, yeah, this whole ending thing is not <laughs> really kind of going as planned. And he was like, well, I mean, I don't have any more money. And I was like, well, you know, the kids are really upset. Um, but we can volunteer 
every Friday to come for free. We can't volunteer every day. We have to try to find another school to teach at. But we can come every Friday um, and volunteer for free, if, if that's cool with you. And he said, yeah, sure, if you guys want to come. So we went back to the classroom, told the kids, okay, the program will continue, but only on Fridays. We live in Brooklyn, and we're coming all the way to the Bronx, which takes me like an hour and 40 minutes. If I come here an hour and 40 minutes on a Friday, and there's no one here, there's no more class. So the kids are like, oh, no, we'll be here, we'll be here. I would say for three months, we did that every Friday. Kids were faithful. They loved it. Um, so then... We had this idea. Joe, I had this idea, my, my business partner. The next song that we finish, oh no, the principal comes to us and says, I wrote a song called Our World. Can you give it to the kids and have, no, I wrote a poem called Our World. Can you give it to the kids and have them turn it into a song? And at the time I thought, dude, you're not even paying me. And now you're asking for personal requests on your poetry to be turned into a song? I'm like, I'm like, the, the, the audacity of this guy. And I was like, ah, whatever. I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. <laughs> so I went there that Friday, told the kids, here's a poem from your principal, and he wants you guys to turn it into a song. And it was amazing. It was literally the, in like one hour, the kids wrote and recorded the song. And it was like the best song they ever did. So I remember leaving the school that day. Joel couldn't come. Met him in the park in the Bronx, played this song for him, and he was like, wow, this song is incredible. And he was like, we should shoot the music video, because every Friday at the school, the principal would have uh, a meeting with all the kids and all the teachers, and he called it Family Circle. So I was like, he's like, we should ask the principal if we could shoot the video on the stage in the auditorium where they have the Family Circle and include the whole school, all the teachers, all the kids in the video, and had the kids rapping and singing the song on stage and walking through the aisles as they rap and sing. So the principal was like, of course, this is a song based on his poetry. Of course he's going to say yes. That music video transformed the entire culture of the entire school. Every teacher at the entire school was like, why aren't these guys coming every day? <laughs> Who are these guys? Wait, they used to come, but now they just come... So the principal instantly had to rehire us. And we taught there for like three years straight. We transformed the culture so much in that school that they literally got rid of the art and music teachers. Because in our class, we did rapping, singing, dancing, poetry, acting, visual arts, script writing. Because we had the kids involved in every aspect of, of creating the whole product. So he was like, man, these guys do more than the art and music class. So he got rid of the art and music class and hired us as full-time teachers to teach five, wait, five classes a day. So we went from after school to teaching five classes a day because of, of that one you know, video and song that we did. And uh, What school was it? Uh, Casa Middle School in, in, the South, in, in the South Bronx. Oh, actually, no, North Bronx. In the North Bronx. But right after... So that was in January, February, and then we got hired at the school, another school by uh, David Ward, a good friend of mine, um, who brought us into his school in the South Bronx. So we had two schools, one in the North and one in the South Bronx. And little did we know that the school that David Ward worked at that brought us into was the high school that Cool Herc, the father of hip-hop, graduated from. So it was just crazy 
that we're teaching at the school in South Bronx. And, and we, so I ended up tracking down Cool Herc, hiring him, bringing him to our schools to meet the kids. And when he came into the South Bronx school, he was like, you know, this is where I went to high school. And he was like, people think hip hop started in the park. It started in the bathrooms at the schools. We would go in the bathrooms and beatbox and rhyme. And then the stuff that we did there, we took to the park. So people, he's like, really, hip hop started right here at this school where you guys are working. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It kind of leaves me speechless. And, and like, <laughs> you're an amazing storyteller. Oh, it, thank it, you. It's really, it's really solid. Thank you. And, and it's not much of an, of, an, of an discussion or interview. I'm just listening to your stories. <laughs> <laughs> but everything you says, it's kind of. It says love, like with big capital letters. <laughs> um, is it? Is it something? <laughs> As you said, you, you spoke about your mother and, and like sharing and, and and giving. So it feels like yeah, that's probably where everything comes from. And, and then, is it? Oh. Like, also, my, my grandmother as well. Yeah. For, I would say, third grade to ninth grade, my family lived in my grandmother's house. We lived on the second and third floor. My grandmother lived on the first floor. And my grandmother's house um, was she was like the, I wouldn't say community center, but she took care of all the kids before school and after school. So any parent who lived on the street, when they would wake up in the morning, get their kids ready, and they had to go to work before school started, they would drop them off at my grandmother's house. So every morning, there were seven, eight, nine kids at my grandmother's house. And after school, every day, there was you know, seven, eight kids at my grandmother's house. So she was always feeding the kids and taking care of the kids. So just seeing her as kind of like the mother to all the kids yeah. on the street yeah. kind of also planted that seed. I'm sure that's kind of where my mom got it from yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. You don't have kids? I do have one kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's it's uh it's another long story to be honest, yeah. Save that for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's finish with just a simple question like of what is love? What is love? Yeah, what is love? You know that's that's. I think it's a really simple question. That's really hard to answer because. Love means so much to so many different people, you know? There's, you know, different studies of, like, what is your love language, you know? And if two people don't have the same love language, they could really have strong feelings for each other, but their relationship not work out, you know? So to answer, like, the question, like, like, like what is love? Sometimes, as, as a very simple answer, I can say... You know, people give love in the form of what they need. If I'm the type of person that really needs, um, you know, a, a really close friend that can always be there, then maybe that's the way I love my friends, you know? Um, I think sometimes, and I think that's kind of like 
the, the different love languages based on where you grew up and how you grew up and the culture of, of how you grew up. Um, love is so many different things. Like the guy from Ghana, when we, we grouped hugged and he said, people in my country, we don't, we don't touch strangers. We don't say I love you, you know? But that doesn't mean that he doesn't love people and that he doesn't express love. Um, so love can come in a million and one different things and different gestures and, and uh, but to, to simplify what all those things are, uh, I would say it's, it's an expression of gratitude, you know? So just to simplify, yeah. love is just an expression of gratitude, you know? Could you briefly recap? You, you said you had you were interviewing artists, yeah, and, and, and then you were ending the or the, the, the interview always with the question of, of how, how was it? How did you articulate it? Uh, what does it mean when you say "I love you"? Yeah, that's what I was asking different hip hop artists, and and there was one answer that struck your right. One particular guy, he was a, a very kind of street type of guy from Detroit, which is a very rough city in America. One of the roughest, I would say. And uh, <coughs> when, you know, we asked a lot of hip hop artists the same question, and they had kind of more standard, kind of typical answers that you would expect. Well, this one guy sat there and he was just like, man, you know, the only way he can, he, he can describe or answer that question is saying, if some people haven't heard those words enough, the words, I love you, it can turn them into a monster. You know, and I've known some adults that said I grew up in a home where my parents never said I love you, you know, and maybe that is one of the problems, big problems in our society as a whole in, in the world is it is one thing to show people that you love them, which is very important, but I also think it's very important to actually say it. Um, Because sometimes, even though you do kind things for people, they might not assume that you actually love them. You know, kids might, you know, my parents feed me, clothe me, clothe me, house me because they're supposed to. You know, but the, just saying the words, I love you, um, I don't know, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's really important to say those words. And, and that's what that guy was saying. You know, some people don't hear that enough, they can turn into a monster, you know. It's time to end here. Um, I feel super, super grateful for for you taking the time and sharing the stories. It's it feels like a huge gift. It's my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. We're coming all the way to New York <laughs> just to uh, to make these podcasts. That's awesome. That's love right there, brother. It is. It is. <laughs> love is in the air. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for being with me. I also want to thank Yuri Pirinen. He's been helping me with the sound you hear in the background and the mastering of the podcast. And there's a new podcast coming out then in two weeks, so... Till then. Bye-bye.